Hello, hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Seven Figure Millennials Podcast, where it is my job to help you to prioritize your happiness, health, and relationships while making your biggest entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your very first episode, I just want to say welcome. Super excited to have you here. If you're returning, welcome back. Just want to say how much I appreciate you. And regardless if you're new or returning, you and I get to hang out with Christine McKay today. Christine McKay is a negotiation business strategist, international speaker, author of Why Not Ask, a conversation about getting more, and host of the In the Ven Zone podcast. She was born and raised in a rural community in Montana, graduated with the same 20 kids she grew up with. Christine's been married to the love of her life, Keith, for almost 30 years and is extremely proud mob of three grown children. Christine holds a Harvard MBA and is the CEO and founder of Venn Negotiation. She has negotiated with nearly half of the Fortune 500 and hundreds of small and mid-sized companies across 53 countries. She loves leveling the playing field for her clients, especially in David and Goliath negotiations. Christine is passionate about empowering entrepreneurs and business owners to ask for more of what they want and showing them how to get it. In today's episode, you're going to learn three things. Number one, how Christine negotiated for two cars for the price of one plus $5,000. Number two, how she went from being homeless and pregnant at 19 to getting an MBA at Harvard, negotiating with over half of the fortune 500 and doing $2.4 billion negotiations. And number three, how you, yes, you can become a better negotiator to get more of what you want in your personal and professional life. Before we dive in, I want to give a pre-show listener shout out to the Center for Respect who left a review saying, great show with inspiring guests. And the review says, fantastic host who brings truly insightful and helpful guests for helping all of us go further in our lives. So thank you so much for Center Respect for leaving that review. And if you're listening to this and you haven't left a review yet and you're a returning guest that's listened to a bunch of episodes, please follow Center for Respect's Example, leave a quick review. It's going to help other people to discover the show, and I might give you a pre-show listener shout-out in the future. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible conversation with my friend, Christine McKay. If you had to pick between A, making a ton of money, B, being happy, healthy, and surrounded with people you love, or C, making a meaningful impact on the world, which would you choose? The good news is that today, we don't have to choose. So the question is, how can entrepreneurs like you and me, who have a vision for our lives and aren't willing to settle for anything less, how can we become financially successful and have a big impact while prioritizing our happiness, health, and relationships? You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the 7 Figure Millennials Podcast. Christine McKay, welcome to the show. I am so excited to be here, Brandon. This has been a long time coming. So psyched. It is. And every time we've had a conversation, I've, I've said, I wish we were recording. So now this time we actually get to record and I get to share it with people. Um, so I wanted to start with a really fun spot. And my, my ego won't let me start with your origin story because you have such an incredible origin story. And so I promise we will go there. But I listened to a few of your other interviews. I'm like, gosh, she tells that story everywhere else. So I want to start with a different story. Perfect. <laughs> So I would love to I would love to start with the story of how you negotiated for two cars for the price of one plus five thousand dollars. How the hell did you do that? <laughs> oh, I love that story. Yeah. So my husband and I are in a heated debate every time the subject comes up over who wrecked his car. Um <laughs> He says it was me. I'm not convinced. Um, so he he needed to replace his car. 
And he had a very, he had, was very focused on getting a Honda element. Um, so obviously this was a few years ago since they don't make that car anymore. Um, I think it's one of the hideous, most hideous cars on the market. But if you live in Denver, you love that car and will drive across the country to buy that car even today. Um, so I just didn't like my car and I didn't have anyone telling me that I couldn't do it. So I was like, well, what do we really want? What do we want out of this Honda element? So we got really clear on kind of all the different options we wanted, you know, everything from price to features. We looked at, you know, what's the dealer going to try to package in to make their money? And then I was like, I wonder if we could buy two cars for the price of one. I was like, that'd be kind of ballsy to go to the dealership and say, yeah, I'm going to get two cars. I want two cars. I want to drive them off the lot, but I'm only going to give you the money for one. So um, I looked and I said, okay, well, is that actually doable for the car dealership? Does that make sense for them? So I started researching the car, their market. How do they sell? I researched the car. Who's the buyer? Um, what's the demographic that they buy? Um, we happen to drive manual transmissions so, and lived in Boston at the time. What percentage of drivers drive manual transmissions? And there are even fewer millennials who drive a manual transmission than there are my generation, which is Gen X. So, um, so it was really, really small. And, and the Honda element was targeted toward people in their late teens through their early thirties. And so then it was like, all right, well then how does, what does the dealership themselves do to make money? What is, how, how many people do they need to come into the lot? How does the salesperson sell? How does the salesperson sell to a man versus a woman? What's the cost of inventory holding if they have more of these vehicles on the lot? So we developed a bunch of assumptions about how fast these cars would move um, and what, how, how hard they would be to negotiate for. And so I found a dealer. There was a website. I can't remember what it is now, but there was a website that told me the number of models of, you know, manual transmission Honda elements were sitting on, you know, a certain dealership's lots. And so I found the dealer in our neighborhood, in our area that had the largest number of Honda elements with manual transmissions, because they were the ones that were most likely to be willing to make a deal. Now you'll read a lot of books and a lot of things that say, never buy a car at the beginning of the month. And others they'll say, never buy a car at the beginning of the year. Well, this was the second weekend of January. So it was both the beginning of the year and the beginning of the month when theoretically there's less incentive for the dealer to actually make a deal because they're pushing everything down and, and trying to get as much as they can up front, knowing that they have to deal toward the end of the month or the end of the quarter or the end of the year. So I also enlisted my husband. I said, we're going to role play. We're going to play into this, to be honest, this misogyny that goes along with buying a car. And I was like, I hated the car, to be honest. I was like, I don't care if I test drive it, anything, whatever. You test drive it. You have all the conversation with the salesperson. Because once the price comes up in a conversation, the salesperson is no longer authorized to have that conversation. That has to go to a manager. And so the manager has that conversation. So I told my husband, I said, you built the relationship with the car salesperson, and I'm going to be completely outside of that. And so... 
that's how it played out. I sat in the back of the car. We get into the into the dealership after test driving it, and and you know me, you you know me, and I, I mean I'm sure you can imagine me reading Good Housekeeping or Red Book magazine, but I'm sitting there. And I'm sitting there. And for those of you who can't see us and aren't watching this on a video, I have like really funky colored hair and I look nothing like somebody who would typically be reading good housekeeping, but I'm reading it. And I'm just kind of, well, I'm not really, but I'm flipping through the pages and the subject of price comes up. My husband says, well, what are you willing to do for us? And so they did what they would always do. They quoted us the sticker price and I shut the magazine and I turned and faced the dealer, the salesperson directly. And I said, I think you can do a lot better than that. And I said, we are willing to buy two cars tonight, these two models, and we will pay you for one of them. And, you know, I said, and I know how this works. You have to take this to your manager. So go take this to your manager. And um, you know, then, you know, and then the man, you guys can go and have a cigarette, do whatever you're going to do, laugh at me, whatever. Cause I'm some crazy woman telling you I'm a buy two cars for the price of brand new cars for the price of one. And then you come back to me and then we'll, we'll talk and I'll explain to you why I feel that this is a doable deal and actually in your best interest. And so the manager comes back, he's furious. Oh, he's kind of pretending to be very angry and very insulted. And so I, he just kind of goes off and he's just like doing his thing. Well, the thing is, is that the percentage of, if you go to a dealer and you don't buy a car when you're on the lot the first time, your probability of buying a car from that dealer drops by something like 90%. It's astronomical. Um, I'm sure some car dealer will put it in the note, put put a comment somewhere to let us know what that exact number is, but it's really high. If you leave the lot, you won't buy there. And so um, he's this, the manager's mad. He's upset and and all that. And I looked at my watch and I looked at my husband and I said, you know, it's, it's almost seven and it's Friday night and it's date night and we have reservations. Let's go. And I, then I looked at the manager and I said, well, it's Friday night. I said, you must not work for the, this weekend because you're working Friday night. I said, what are you doing this weekend? And he was totally taken aback. So completely interrupted his pattern to comp- just total pattern interrupt. And he said, well, I'm, we were in Massachusetts. He's like, I'm really into dog sled racing and I have a race this weekend. And I said, oh my gosh, that's so cool because I'm from Montana where the Iditarod winner was from for two consecutive years. We had a standard poodle. It was in the news and in the press at the time that there was this controversy about standard poodles racing in the Iditarod because some had died. And so we started talking about that. So we totally changed the nature of the conversation and we brought it back to being human. And then I said, well, let's get back to this car. Is it okay with you if I share my rationale? Because I'm open to having a conversation about it, but I want you to understand why I think that this is actually a good deal for you. And you can tell me where I'm wrong. So I had had built a little spreadsheet. I had my math. I knew my assumptions. I had the sources for my assumptions. All these different things. I just, I love the fact that you were playing the house, like reading the magazine in the background. And you're just like, hold up, let me whip out this spreadsheet. They're like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> exactly. 
And so he told me I was wrong on the inventory holding cost. So we adjusted the offer by five grand and we drove off the lot that night with two cars that we paid for what for we bought one and added five paid $5,000 for the second one. Man. Wow. Okay. So if everybody's listening, they're like, okay, she's, she's a ninja. I already know she's a ninja. So there's lots of, there's, I want to, like I said, I promise I want to talk about your origin story, but there's a bunch that you just shared in here that I want to kind of unpack because I think it's super valuable. And you talked about lots of things that I think were really key components of the negotiation that people might not fully realize what was going on there. Mm -hmm. So you talked about in the very beginning about the amount of research that you had done ahead of time. And I know that a key component of your negotiation is understanding what the value is for their perspective. And so when it came to articulating what the value is for them in, in making this decision, can you maybe walk us through that specific part of the conversation about like what specifically, you know, maybe they were, their objections were and how you handled that and made it so that they actually saw that, that it was actually in their benefit to do this deal? Well, I think that, so from their perspective, they actually, their only real objection that they put forward was one that a lot of companies do, or a lot of people who perceive that they are in positions of power actually use. And that is, well, we just can't do that because, because, you know, you know, my boss won't let me, the CEO won't let me, it's just not done in the market and whatever the reason. And that was pretty much the approach that they were taking. So they weren't doing, one of the things that they were ineffective in doing is actually taking my assumptions and telling me where my assumptions were wrong, which reinforced my view that my assumptions were actually accurate, except in this inventory holding perspective, because they didn't really push back on the assumptions. A lot of times when people think about negotiating, they think only about price. And you've listened to a lot of my stuff. And when I talk about this story, a lot of times, and if I'm speaking at an event, I ask people, what are some of the things you think about when you're buying a car? And people say, you know, they talk, mentioned price, reliability, color, features, benefits, insurance, warranty. But the one thing that nobody talks about yet in, in all my years of doing this and telling this story, nobody ever says that I want to drive it off the lot or I want to order it because time matters. And time in the case of a car dealer in this situation they had new new models on the lot. They, you know, we were buying a model that was a year older. So they had new models on the lot. They had more models coming. So time was a huge driving factor of economic value. But when we don't think about what the drivers are of value, we lose the opportunity to find creative solutions to figure out how to solve both of our problems. They needed to get those cars off that lot it was economically much better for them to take the deal, to do the deal that we gave them to then to have them sit there for an extended period of time. And I knew, I knew what percentage of the market was even in their target, which then I could narrow down given the geography that they were in and the region and the, you know, the location. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a car that, I mean, it's perfect for a 21 year old because you can get drunk the first time, like, well, theoretically the first time, right? But you can get drunk the first time and throw up in the car and just hose the damn thing out because 
you, it, it's all waterproof inside. And it was geared for, it was built for camping and young people. And they had a dog version of it at one point. And so it wasn't geared toward families. And they were, but the dealer was located in a, in a family heavy suburb. And so there weren't a lot of young people. There weren't, it wasn't a college area. I mean, it was just, it was not, they weren't going to be that population of driver wasn't really there. And so few millennials at the time, well, and even my, our age were driving manual transmission. And I mean, mm-hmm. I now live in Los Angeles and having a manual transmission is the best anti-theft device on the planet. Um, but you know, that was, that, that's, that was kind of the thing. So it was really understanding their market, who was likely to walk in to buy that car who their competition was and creating an offer for them that absolutely showed that our, that our being there at that moment in time and the offer we were presenting was much greater than they were going to get and generate greater value for them than if they held onto those cars, which they would have taken a, a, a fairly long time to sell all of them. Yeah. So there's a few things I want to highlight there. The, the the first thing too, is that she intentionally chose that dealership after like doing her research. And I think that was like a, a cool thing that we can all take away too, is like, are you doing enough research to understand that you can even win the game to begin with? Because like, she knew that she knew that she could win this negotiation. I don't want to say win, because I know you have a different view on it, but like you, you could have a higher probability of everybody having a good outcome by the fact that you chose the correct dealership. So that's an important thing to think about. And we can, we can dive in that too. But another thing that you said in the initial, when you were telling the story initially, I thought would be interesting to talk about too, is you asked if it was okay for you to share your rationale after you de-escalated the fact that, you know, he was all pissed off. And then you talked about dog sledding and that kind of stuff. So can you maybe explain why that was important and why asking that question was actually a good thing to do? That so one of the things one of the mistakes that I see people make in negotiation is that they 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 think of it as a game. And 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 it depends on who you ask. Who you ask depends on what game they'll tell you it is. Some people will tell you it's a game of chess, right? Very strategic, but some people will tell you it's a game of poker and they'll hold their cards close to the vest. Really successful negotiators are very good at being transparent when it's necessary. And when you have somebody who's agitated or confused, um, then that transparency goes a long way to building goodwill because negotiation is an accumulation of yeses. And so when you, like in that situation, and there's an author, um, James Camp, John Camp, Camp is his last name. Anyway, he talks about really driving people to no because no gives you a boundary. So Harvard talks about getting to yes, but he talks about you know getting essentially getting to getting to no because it creates a boundary, which is essentially what I did in the case of the car dealership. Right, I pushed them to a no and you know no fucking way kind of thing. And then once you hit that point, now you got to rebuild and you've got to figure out how to get the yeses. Asking permission to share your your logic and your rationale is important because, you know, as our, you know, our friend and, you know, and mentor Blair Dunkley talks about ask versus tell, right? People don't like being told things. It's like, I could have sat there and said, and just said, well, my, my, my logic is this, this is, this is your numbers. This is the value of this car. This is what the cost of this is. This, and I could have just said that to him. Right. But I'd already pushed him to a no position. He was emotionally engaged. So I had to rebuild. 
So it was much more effective to ask permission to share. Because, and usually in my experience, when you ask permission to share information, it's very rare that somebody will say, no, I don't care about your information. That's mm -hmm. very, very rare. It does happen, but in all my years of negotiating, that's incredibly rare. Yeah. And so I guess one thing I didn't realize in sharing the story, but now you, you shared those, that detail, the, it was very intentional when you put down the magazine and you said, this is what I want. We're going to get two cars for the price of one that was intentional to get the no almost immediately. It was like just being super blunt about it. And you knew that that was what was going to happen. Yes. And part of that is because of how, how at the time, and, and I, I haven't bought a car in a while, but I don't know if I don't, based on what I hear anecdotally, it hasn't changed significantly. How a car dealer sells to a woman is very different than how they, a, a man will typically walk away with a better price than a woman will. Um, and, and women are not necessarily as comfortable pushing on that. So it was absolutely intentional. It was very much a strategy to, to push as hard as I could to know. Now, at the same time, I legitimately believed based on my research and the math that I had done, that it was possible for the dealer to sell me two cars for the price of one. I never would have asked that if I thought it was impossible for the dealer to do. And that's mm -hmm. a big distinction because there's a point of asking and pushing and you, and you get a hard no, um, but it's based on real logic and, and facts and data and information and versus pushing somebody to a hard no, just to be a jackass, right? You can be a total jerk about it and say, and just, you know, try to, you know, kind of, I call them being champions, really kind of annihilate, annihilate them as a counterpart and just, you know, dominate them and prove that you're better than they are. And, you know, they're, 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 there's a small percentage of negotiators who approach negotiation in that way, which is very ineffective. So if you have that research and you have that information behind you, the thing about data that's so valuable in negotiation is that it's hard to negotiate or it's hard to argue against numbers if assumptions have already been agreed to, which is why I often say that price is an output of a negotiation, not an input to the negotiation. So if I think about the car example, right? I can say, what are all the assumptions that I think drive value for the dealer, right? Some of the things that drive value are what products am I buying or services am I buying from the dealer um, that are aside from the car itself? Am I getting it detailed every month or every quarter? Am I, am I doing a special warranty? Am I doing something with a paint job? And I mean, there's just all these other things that come into play that, that, that are, that's how the part of how the contributes to how the dealer is making money. And so when you're thinking about all of the things that go into what makes the dealer or your other, whatever your counterpart is, how they're making money. And you talk about the, those assumptions that go into that. That's a lot easier conversation to have than, than me assigning value to something and saying, well, this is this, and that is what it is. Right. Versus saying, well, I think this is a value. Is this a value? What about this is value? Or I, I believe this has value. Is there something about my observation that is inaccurate? Right. And then you open yourself up to be corrected and then you appreciate the correction and you evaluate it. Um, 
And then I, and unless I've evaluated and, and um, done the math, I, I rarely agree to something at the negotiation table. So what he had proposed, I'd already modeled that out. I already knew, I already knew what that looked like in my financial model. So I'd already taken that into account. So that's another thing. Yeah. So I hope that this kind of all makes sense here, but from what part of what you said reminded me of something I came across in my research and you have this example of uh, splitting an egg. <laughs> uh, so I, w- I was hoping maybe you could, you could share what that has to do with, um, you know, this, this whole example that we're using and also with assumptions. Cause I feel like uncovering and understanding that the split the egg example has a lot to do with assumptions as well. So before people are like, what the hell is a split the egg question? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what it means to split an egg. <laughs> well, I love this as an example because it really highlights kind of what negotiation is versus what haggling is. And, and when you think about a car, a lot of people go in the haggle a car. They're like, I, they're just going to go in and try to screw the dealer out of whatever and, you know, drive them down to the lowest possible price, which is not what we were doing. Um, we were trying to drive to the greatest possible value. And the way to describe that is use thinking about an egg, which I usually have one on my desk. But if you have a raw egg in its shell, right, and you have three people who want that egg, how do you divide the egg in thirds? How do you get three different pieces so all three people can share in the value of that egg? So when I ask this question to people, usually one of two, they usually, there are two things that come up. One is that you hard boiled it, hard boil it, and then you divide it in thirds, or you scramble it or make an omelet and divide it in thirds. But really effective negotiation is, okay, what are the parts of the egg? Well, I have a shell, a yolk, and a white. And guess what? If I poke a hole in the bottom of the shell, I can take the yolk and the white out and I can separate the yolk from the white. And I have three distinctive parts of an egg. I haven't taken one object and divided it in thirds. I've created three completely separate, distinct objects with arguably equal value, depending on who's who gets it. You can take the egg shell and you can create a piece of art out of it or use it for composting. You can use the egg yolk to glaze a pie or some baked good, and you can still make an omelet with your egg whites. And so, you know, it's, it's negotiation. Haggling is taking and dividing the, that, that product product or that, that service and saying, I have a hundred percent of something. And if you get something, that means I lose. If you win, I lose. Negotiation is a really effective negotiation is about saying, how do I take this thing that we're looking at and find other pieces that create more value so that we're actually partaking and participating in something bigger, something greater, something more. It's a, it's a difference between thinking about negotiation from a position of scarcity versus thinking about it from a position of abundance. And so that's the, that's the, the egg example is yes. thinking about abundance. So, so just to tie this all together from what we've been talking about before is just think about the example that Christine shared about negotiating for the car, right? Like, so like, let's, let's relate that back to the egg example. She went and she did her research on this particular dealer. She knew that they had extra. She knew that they were in a particular area where they weren't likely to sell this kind of stuff. So that's the example of like, let's, instead of just looking at the car as the egg, let's look at the yolk, let's look at the shell and let's look at the, the whites and understand what all the different variables are 
I play so that we can actually have a negotiation instead of trying to win it or lose it. So I absolutely love that. Is there anything else you wanted to add to that? No, that's, that's good. Okay. Cool. Well, okay. So I, I, I know we skipped over in the beginning. So now people are probably thinking, okay, so we've listened to, we've talked about some incredible negotiation stuff. How the, how the hell did she become this crazy negotiator? So I would love for you to tell the story about, um, when you were 19 years old, what was going on in your life at that time and how that had to do with turning into the incredible negotiator that you are. (laughs) Yeah. So 19 was a rough year, 19 and 19 to 22 were pretty rough years. Um, so I was, I found myself pregnant and not married at 19. I had, um, been living, I was living in a trailer park in, um, Missoula, Montana, and I just lost my job. I got evicted. It was mid January. And, uh, I started living out of the back of my car. I was homeless, was homeless for a number of months in my first six months of pregnancy. I lost 25 pounds. Um, because you can't get on, couldn't get on welfare when you didn't have an address. And so I couldn't, I didn't, and I, my family was unable to, to, to provide assistance. So I was what they call, what we call the hidden homeless. So I tried to couch surf um, and stay with friends when I could. Um, I kind of squatted um, at somebody's house for a little while, um, but she was a heroin addict. So I couldn't handle being around her uh, very long. And so then I met this guy who I thought was a nice guy. He needed to rescue somebody. I thought I needed to be rescued. So it was a marriage made in hell. Um, and we, <laughs> we got together and uh, I had my first daughter. And then I had two more kids at the age of, by the age of 22. Uh, I, he did not believe that women should work, did not believe women should be educated, I looked, you know, I'm showing my age, but I looked like June Cleaver. I had, you know, was wearing dresses to clean the house. My kids were perfectly coiffed. Dinner was on the table at 5 p.m. every night. I talked to whom I was allowed to talk to. I did what I was told to do. Um, and if you know, if you, as you know me, Brendan, that, that is not, that is not who I am. Um, and so I, one night, one day, um, but he couldn't support us. We were on welfare. We were buying groceries at the local food bank or our church was delivering groceries to us. And one day my daughter, my oldest daughter um, was hungry. And the only thing I had in my cupboard was a can of tomato soup. And she had a very sensitive mouth and tomato soup hurt her mouth. And so she did what any self-respecting three-year-old did would do. And she threw a temper tantrum. And I was so frustrated that I pretty much picked her up and just, I just shoved her into the cupboard to show her that I had nothing. There was nothing there. And I decided I was going to go to that. That was it. And I decided I was going to go to community college. Um, I paid a price for that. And uh, one of my girlfriends, when I called her to tell her that he wouldn't let me go, she's like, well, how important is it? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, will he kill you if you go anyway? And uh, I said, no. And it was a legitimate question for her to ask because she's in a very abusive relationship. And uh, I said, no, I don't think you will. And she goes, well, then how important is it? So I went to community college. I got a 4.0. I was only allowed to study from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. I got a full scholarship to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. And a couple of weeks before classes started, it was about an hour and a half away from where we lived. A couple of weeks before classes started, I went to campus and I was like, it, RPI had been listed in the top 25 schools that year. And uh, I was like, this is going to be easier on my own 
with my kids than it is with him. And I went to the school and I said, I need to get out of this situation. Can you help me find housing? They helped me find housing. And two weeks later, my kids and I moved and uh, I became the first woman to graduate both as a full-time student and a single mom from Rensselaer. And uh, that started me on this amazing trajectory of uh, I, I graduated. I actually met somebody who I fell in love with. I we, we celebrate our 28th anniversary this year. He's amazing. Congrats. Thank you. And uh, and I found my way in internet into international mergers and acquisitions, working for what's now Verizon. I started out working in Southeast Asia. I worked in Eastern and Western Europe, negotiating with ministers of finance and ministers of telecommunication because. Um, the euro didn't exist then, and governments were selling their state-owned assets in Europe in order to buy into the common currency. And I was part of the team negotiating for the, to buy some of those assets. And uh, and then I ended, and then I worked my way to Harvard University, where I earned my MBA. A uh, very long way from living in the back of my car and having three kids shopping at the food bank. And um, and then I just I just kept going and I just I love negotiation and I've negotiated with almost half the Fortune 500, 67 of the Fortune 100 across 53 countries. And but I really like working with smaller businesses, smaller and mid-sized companies are where my heart is at. I get frustrated seeing how big entities get to take advantage of smaller organizations. And I really love helping them level the playing field, helping to make sure that that they are positioning themselves in a way that's effective, that is in a way that drives profitability and helps them be sustainable for a long period of time. Thank you so much. I mean, it's such a beautiful story. So thank you so much for sharing. And there, there are a few things I want to zoom in on that I'm just really curious about. Because another thing that I came across in my research was that, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were you were voted most likely to succeed in your high school. Was that was that accurate? Okay. So yeah. so if you're if you're voted most likely to succeed in high school, then at 19 you're forced into this like really compliant relationship. It just that those two things don't really seem like they fit together for me. So like, what what do you think was going through your mind, or like what caused that to go from you're going to crush it, you're going to succeed and then you're 19 and you're just doing what what your ex-husband told you to do? Well, so first of all, I have to understand that I graduated with the same 20 kids that I started kindergarten with. So, okay. um, <laughs> but it was actually, it was still a big deal to be voted, the, the girl most likely to succeed. So I think we had 12 girls in our class, 12 you know, young women in our class. Um, but it was still a big deal because I was super unpopular. I was really unpopular in school. And um, I just was somebody who just would make a decision of what I, I wanted to do something or I wanted something to change. And I just made it happen. And I had gotten, I'd ran for my first political office when I was 18. Um, I was a beauty queen in high school. I try, I was an international exchange student. And But I did have a traumatic event happen. And when that traumatic event happened when I was 16, I didn't have it happened. And then I had no time to process it. And, and it, it just kind of haunted me, but I didn't realize it. And so that then when I found out that I was pregnant, what, what happened for me is that I I believed that all these great things that people saw in me, that they saw that I could do, or they told me I could do, I believed that they were all lying to me. 
And, you know, I took my, all of my public speaking trophies. I took my, my tiara and I destroyed all of it. I smashed it all the smithereens because I believed that I wasn't capable of making good decisions for myself. Obviously I was not married and I was pregnant and living in a car. And so clearly I wasn't, I wasn't smart enough as people, I wasn't as smart as people told me. I wasn't as capable as people told me. And so then once I was in that, that, that world, right. When you're, when you're that poor and you are in that position and, and I live in Los Angeles, I live in downtown Los Angeles and, you know, people walk past the homeless and give them no mind, you know, give them dirty looks. If they even look at them, pretend they don't exist. Um, just dehumanize them. It is, it is dehumanizing to be that poor. And when you are, uh, when you're 19 and you're pregnant and you're that poor and it's 30 below zero outside, by the way, in, in Northern Montana, um, it's, it is really dehumanizing and you don't know where your food's coming from. And you don't know, you don't, you, you just kind of assume I I would just sit there and, and pray that my baby was going to be healthy because I wasn't able to get care for her for myself during that period of time. And so when you're in that level of desperation, when somebody reaches their hand down down to you because mm. that's what it is when it, that's how it feels when somebody reaches their hand down to you and appears to be helping you out of a situation but what then can happen is that it's not a helping it's not a help out it's a reinforcement of your of of your lack of humanity um and and it's really easy to get trapped with somebody who sees you as less than and because you believe you are less than and then that just gets reinforced and perpetuated until you find some way of finding your strength and and so i felt that i was less than and i found somebody who reinforced that and and i believed him for a long time we were married for 7 years and so i believed that for a long time and you know it was it was my friend asking me if if my husband was going to kill me that kind of shook me and it kind of goes again i talk about blair a lot because a lot of blair dunkley a lot because a lot of the things that he talks about has been throughout my life and he talks about safety versus comfort and she was the first person who actually challenged mm-hmm. me to say are you really unsafe because she was really unsafe. So she had a different metric. She had a different perspective. So when she put that lens in front of me to say, are you just really uncomfortable? Or are you really in danger? Are you really in physically danger? Well, no. Well, if you're not really in physically da- physical danger, then what the fuck are you going to go do about it? Yeah. Right. And so, yeah. And I owe, I owe her, I owe her my life. That's incredible. And uh, just to close some loops, um, for, for those that are listening, if you haven't listened to the episode with Blair, it should be live by this time, but you can kind of hear some of the stuff that Christine's talking about and, and hear about Blair's mind models. Uh, because like like Christine said, his stuff is incredible. Uh, one, one thing that I did want to zoom in on there, and thank you so much for sharing these details. This is so powerful. And just seeing all the things that you've, you've overcome is just absolutely mind-blowing. You shared at 16, you had a traumatic event. Obviously, don't have to share the traumatic event with everyone. But w- what I've found, at least in, in examining my life, is that you know, I look at the most negative things that have happened to me and the the positive is actually very closely related if you look at that event and, and look at how you 
reacted to that event and what the potential reverse was. So I could be completely off base here, but do you view that this type of experience, whether it was you were in 16 or this 19 year old being pregnant, do you view that that had to do a lot with the way that you started to explore negotiation, which is like your superpower? So I think that, I think one of the things that I love about me as a negotiator, because I have because I have this experience, this, this traumatic experience, plus I have, you know, been homeless, but I've also been in some of the biggest boardrooms in the world. And my largest transaction was $2.4 billion. And so, you know, I have it's, and I've worked in sales, I've worked in procurement, and I've worked in mergers and acquisitions. So that's unusual. Usually somebody picks something. So I have this really awesome breadth of of experience. And I can relate to people on, it's one of the things I love is just, I can meet people where they're at. In, in so many ways. And, and I love that. I love that about me. I, I just, I, I care so much about, about humanity. Humanity is the thing that gives me hope. So a lot of people sit and say, and certainly people at my, my age, I always hate saying that, but my age and older, you know, they're like humanity sucks, blah, 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 blah. blah. And I'm like, I have, I have absolute hope because of humanity. And I apply that to negotiation because negotiation is a hopeful act. We negotiate because we believe that our, our lives and our situations will be better as a result of either being in business or doing something together or separating because that's still a negotiation and dissolving a relationship still is a relationship because once you've been in a relationship, you will always be influenced and informed by that relationship. And so my early, my early experiences in my life and certainly from being homeless um, and all the, the people that I encountered in that, in that journey, um, it, 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 I absolutely believe it has really made me a different kind of negotiator um, because I, I see things from a very different perspective than like a Chris Voss, who's, you know, retired FBI hostage negotiator, right? I could never be a hostage negotiator, but Chris Voss could never do what I do, how I do it. It just, he couldn't do it. So I, I, I love that about my experience and my background. Yeah. So if you're listening to this right now, think, think about, you know, potentially some of those negative things that have happened in your life. Like what is the positive component of it as well? And I think that's so huge and something that I've recognized in interviewing people on this show is that if you've, if you had terrible things that have happened to you, one of the key things is, is, is it creates such a level of empathy and especially in negotiation or forming relationships with people. And people ask me all the time, like, how do you, you know, talk with people that are more successful than you or whatever? Like, how do you level on that playing field? It's like, if you're a human being, which is really all we want at the end of the day is to connect with another human being, that's the world's most important thing. And so I get that question fairly frequently. It's like, you know, I I was blessed to say that I networked my way into a a really high-end mastermind at age 22. And they're like, who are you to be some 22 year old to connect with people? And it's like, if you know how to connect with people and really just have conversations and empathize, you know, you can be someone like Christine that went from being homeless and doing a $2.4 billion deal, you know, like those are things that, that allow you to do. And you just have to give yourself the permission to do that. I feel like lots of it has to do with permission as well. 
Oh, I agree with that. And, and you know, when I was doing the inter- when I was doing in uh, negotiating with ministers of finance and ministers of telecommunication, I was only 28. So, you know, I was 28 years old when I started doing that, telling, you know, telling you know, government officials that I thought their numbers were crap and that I thought they were, you know, talking bullshit. Right. It's like, <laughs> you know, you know, kicking, kicking my COO under the table because he went a direction that I told him specifically not to go. And so I'm kicking him under the table. Don't recommend you do that. Don't kick your boss <laughs> under the table. Noted. I did. I did. And, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, the, One of the things that makes somebody really good at negotiating, you talk about it, you mentioned empathy. And people have asked me many times, like, what would you tell your, you know, 20 year old self? And I tell myself to ask for more of what I want. Right? We, We get conditioned to that. And it's especially true for women, but it's true for everybody, but especially for women and minorities, where it's like, we we're supposed to kind of be grateful for what we're given. And so be grateful for what you're given and don't expect more. Well, I say bullshit. Um, you know, ask for more of what you want and expect to get it. And that, that's a Maya Angelou quote, but, you know, but I ask for more and expect to get it. And, you know, but to, when you're asking, you have to be able to listen and listen as a listening is a full body activity. I consider it a full contact sport. It takes more than just your ears. It's your eyes. I mean, it takes your whole body. You have to be, you know, somebody walks in with a certain type of perfume that's communicating something to you that tells you something about that person. If they walk in and they're, you know, wearing, you know, a Mickey Mouse tie that tells you something. It tells you that that person loves kids, loves childhood, probably still is very much a child, has a childlike embrace, childlike embrace and thing. How you talk to him is going to be very different than somebody who walks in in a blue pinstripe to a suit with a red tie and a white shirt. You're, there, there's a different level of, and, and picking up on those things, especially when you're early in your career is, is huge. That will set you up for success in like so many ways, just to be observant and to listen with more than just your ears and listen to more than just the words that are coming out of somebody's mouth. Because, you know, as, as research shows, the average person will lie 10 times a day at minimum. And so, you know, the words, we can't always trust the words that are coming out of somebody's mouth, but you can start, you can learn how to read in between the lines and, and hear what they're not saying. And you do that by looking at the whole, the whole being, the whole person, the whole situation and kind of gleaning information from that perspective. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm sure you and I could just nerd out about Blair stuff all the time, but because, because you you and I both have the same language, but I think that's really interesting from the perspective, because one of the things that Blair adds to the table that I think is so true is that the content isn't as important as the process. So like, that's one thing that I feel like you probably, that was a huge uh, light bulb moment for me is that, you know, if, if you're listening to this and you're negotiating with someone and you're having a conversation with them, don't think about just the words that are coming out of their mouth. Think about the, first of all, think about the context, what context are they coming from? And there's lots of clues as to how they think as the result of the words that they're using. And that can sometimes give you more clues to 
who they are as a person than the actual content of the words themselves. So are there any other ways that we could, you know, kind of pay attention to those things? Or if we're somebody, if somebody listens to that and they're like, that just sounds so meta, I have no idea. Like that's just like crazy. <laughs> How can we bring that more down? Like, and actually apply something like that as far as being a better listener? Yeah, I think, I mean, and, and again, and, and, the, and I do talk about Blair a lot because his, he gives me a specific language to talk about things that I've done forever. And so that's one of the things I like about it, but like about his work, but he talks about being curious and, and that's actually really something that a lot of people find very difficult to do today. We've gotten so, you know, into ourselves, into our phones, into our computers, into whatever, that we forget to be curious about the people around us. We still want people to be curious about us, but we forget to be curious about the people around us. And it's that curiosity, which creates relationship. And, and my philosophy is that negotiation is just a conversation about a relationship and you cannot win a relationship. And so when you get curious about the people that you're engaging with counterparts, you know, counterparts in business or a partner or a parent or a child, any human being, when you get curious, it, oh my gosh, it opens up so many possibilities. And, and I interviewed somebody on, on my upcoming podcast. Um, her name is Megan Gardner. And, and she does, um, she 20 years ago started a company that focuses, that did after school programs and summer camps for kids. And it was a, it was a LARPing um, program. So she was doing live action role playing long before anyone else did it. And, and now does it for major corporations and all sorts of things. And she talks about, you know, how we, we talk about how curiosity leads to under, un, uncovering and discovering possibilities and opportunities. And so it's, it's really, that's kind of the crux of it. Yeah. And I, last time we talked, you mentioned LARPing before, and I went down a YouTube rabbit hole, which is really interesting. If, if you want, if you want to learn some interesting stuff, go type in LARP, L-A-R-P in, in YouTube. And just, it's crazy how many worlds exist outside of like, like my realm of possibility. And it's just like, you know, LARPing live action role-playing is a whole new world. And so if you want to be exposed to like a new way of thinking and just see some stuff, just some, some interesting thing for you to do today. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it, it is, it's, I mean, we, and she, Megan and I talked about how LARPing and video games are a negotiation. We talk about, we bring that back to negotiation, which is kind of an interest. It was, it was a fascinating conversation. I was just re-listening to it. It's a really interesting conversation. Yeah. So, so one thing that I think I, I want to make sure I don't skip over in this conversation, I think this is something that unique that you bring to the negotiation conversation is typically when it comes to negotiation, and I've read a whole bunch of books on it, very few, very, it's not very often that it talks about the inner dialogue of yourself, like what's going on in your own mind uh, in the negotiation. And that's one thing that you talk about very often is negotiating with yourself. Like there's no way you could have negotiated your way out of the back of uh, a car at 19 years old and doing all this stuff if you hadn't figured out what the hell was going on inside of your own brain first. So just wanted to open up that conversation. And, and for somebody that you know wants to be a better negotiator, but you think it's a good place to start with their mind, how can they actually start to negotiate with their self more effectively to get more of what they want. I'm glad you raised that because the hardest part of any negotiation is the negotiation we have with ourselves. It's that conversation we have between our own ears because, you know, go back to the car example, right? If 
I mean, when I'm speaking, I ask people who here would ever go to a dealer and tell them that they want to buy two cars for the price of one. And absolutely nobody raises their hand. Even people who are like, I just want to go stick it to them. They still wouldn't go and try to buy two cars for the price of one. And so, you know, if I'd had somebody external saying, oh my God, that's the most stupid thing. There's no way that's going to happen. Then I would have started, then there would have been self-doubt. And then I would have started, then I would have started negotiating with myself. I would have said, Oh my gosh, I'm asking too much. Oh my gosh, I can't do. Oh, what are they going to think about me? Instead of finding in the data information that actually allowed me to rationalize and justify that position to go, oh, this, this actually is kind of doable. And so, you know, one of the big things is really being clear on what it is that you want. And, you know, I think about jobs, right? So, um, you know, millennials, so the millennials, you know, in the older age of millennials, right, they are moving into their second jobs. They're starting to go, I'm I'm not happy doing what I'm doing. Uh, I've been doing this now for 10, 15 years, and I'm miserable. And what the hell do I do? Or they're in a job and they want a promotion. Um, or you're coming, you're, you're coming into a new phase of your, your career, and you're looking to move up. Well, okay, so you're going to go ask your boss for a, a raise or promotion. What do you want out of it? You know, and most people have a really hard time articulating that. Are there differences in, do you want something different that's just salary? Do you want something that's vacation related? Where are you at on the band in your company if you work for somebody else? Um, maybe you ask for a new car instead of asking for a raise. You know, do you, where are you at on your 401k? What's your health insurance like? Um, what kind of jo- job do you want? One of the things that I volunteered at Harvard Business School for a number of years doing career advising work Um, which was super rewarding. But one of the things I always tell people to do is write at your own job description. Do not include a title. Don't include a title. Don't put it in a box. Just sit down and write a job description. What are all the things that you love to do, right? And, and And then once you write that down, now you can start to create it. My last company, I created my own job title. I, we created the whole job to fit what it was that I loved to do. And, and for millennials, you guys are all starting to hit a stage in your careers where you can start to be more creative and craft more of those messages, but you just have to be clear on what it is that you want and what that's going to look like. Yeah. And I would say too, you know, for the, you know, we primarily talk about entrepreneurship on the show, like that, that, that applies a hundred percent too to creating your own business. Cause it's Absolutely. like, if you're not, if you're not clear on what the direction of your business is, you don't know how to talk to the right clients. You don't know how to form the right strategic partnerships and clarity is absolutely power clarity. I think it's, I don't know where I heard that. I think maybe about Tony Robbins, but that, this is a really interesting topic I wanted to talk about too, because not only do you need clarity for yourself, one thing that I thought was interesting in my research that you said too, is that like very often in a negotiation, one of the problems is the fact that your partner doesn't even know what they want. So if mm-hmm. their partner doesn't know what they want and you don't know what they want, how the hell are you negoti- going to negotiate anything? So, so let, we've, we've already talked about getting clear on what you want. I think that's easier when you're in a negotiation and you don't really know, it, it seems to be clear that they don't even really have a clear idea of what they want. How can you go about asking the right questions or at least set up the situation so that they get clear on what they want. So you can actually negotiate for it. 
Well, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier around the car example, which is about transparency, right? So when you go into a negotiation, if you're going in and you want to be effective, you are incredibly well-researched and well-prepared. And so as a part of that process, you develop assumptions about what your counterpart can and cannot potentially do but you're going into this you're going into the conversation with knowing what you want and knowing what you need and you go in with assumptions about where your counterpart is and one of the big mistakes that people make when they're negotiating is that they think when they're at the negotiation table the only one that matters is them mm-hmm. but when you're at the negotiation table you don't matter at all your counterpart matters because you have these, you should have these assumptions about your counterpart and your time at the negotiation table is about testing those assumptions and refining them, figuring out where you were accurate, where you were inaccurate and looking for opportunities to make adjustments. And when your counterpart doesn't know what they want, that process helps them to start to refine what it is that they want too. So you end up leading them down using, you know, questions and, and information and data and research that you've developed and, uh, and, and found. You use that information to, to kind of lead them down a path to help them into discovering what it is that they want. So that, because it's in that discovery process that, that really successful negotiations happen is when you're, you're able to like discover. And if you think about it, most people are not clear on what it is that they want. And one of, like in my world, when I'm, I'm always, whenever I'm negotiating, I have two negotiations that are going on at exactly the same time for exactly the same deal. One with my client and one with my client's counterpart, right? So I'm having to kind of figure out what the counterpart wants and needs. And often they are not able to articulate it and finding ways of kind of poking around the edges to, you know, is this a policy or is this, you know, what is really non-negotiable versus what is negotiable? And what if we, you know, bring in these other ideas and other concepts, but then I also have to negotiate with my client to say, to, to really get them to understand what it is that they want and kind of get create that level of understanding to find a solution that works for both sides. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I, th- I think one thing that you've you've talked about multiple times now and you brought up, and this is something I used to skip over, but it just comes from the topic of assumptions. And like assumptions, I feel like are probably the most important thing in a negotiation is because there could be these black swans, as Chris calls them, that, that you know, there's just these hidden things inside of a negotiation that once it comes to the surface, it makes the whole, the world of a difference when it comes to the negotiation. So any particular advice for us when it just comes to being more aware of what the assumptions are and how to ask the right questions to uncover what assumptions that may be lying hidden in plain sight? Well, I mean, from a tactical perspective, one of the things that I always suggest to people is, and it's not, you can't do it in every negotiation, but certainly from a business negotiation, if you are an entrepreneur, you should absolutely not be in the negotiation if it's really important, you mm. should hold yourself out to be an escalation point. Mm. 
Because if you, especially if you're negotiating with somebody who you believe has more power and more influence than you, or is a bigger company than you, you want to have, you want to have an escalation path because if you're the decision maker and you're the one at the negotiation table and that other party is like, well, you're the decision maker. So it's all up to you. So get yourself an advisory board. Your advisory board doesn't have necessarily can't veto something, but you can at least say that I have, I have a formal advisory board and, you know, I have a commitment to evaluate this type of deal with them before making a decision. So now you have an escalation point. You have a way of walking away from the table to kind of really think and evaluate and assess what's, what's being offered and what's not. And you have a commitment to the people on your advisory board to actually, um, you know, to actually bounce ideas off of them. And does this make sense or get a third party? And if it's an attorney, be very particular about who you bring in as an attorney, make sure you're bringing in attorneys into a negotiation who really understand business, who can sit and walk and talk profit and loss statements. They understand balance sheets. They understand cost of goods sold and the accounting of things. And you need somebody at the table who understands business, not just understands the law. So if it's an attorney, that's great. Make sure they understand business. If it's somebody like, uh, like Venn negotiation, we work with lawyers because we're not attorneys. But that's, I mean, just tactically make sure you've got a way of kind of moving out of that to uh, out of those situations to give yourself breathing room. But then the other big thing is just getting the other big thing is having somebody in the negotiation with you so that you somebody you're doing somebody's doing the talking and listening and somebody's taking notes because there's a disconnect between what happens to note taking versus what we hear. That way, then you have a way of kind of coming to together to figure out what really made sense. And one of the other things that's really helpful is negotiating the process up front. Before you actually even get into the nitty gritty, negotiate the process, figure out who's all involved in making the decision. Who is there? Does your counterpart have an escalation path? Who's in that escalation path? How much time does that going to take? And what does all that look like? And some of this doesn't sound very sexy, right? Because it's like, but it's a, it's a groundwork. It's a, it's laying the groundwork for a lot of different things that makes it easier down the road. I think it makes absolute sense. Cause if it's like, if I'm playing a new game, the first question I'm going to ask is how do you win the game? You know? And like, if you don't, it's the same thing in a negotiation, like uh, the ending of the negotiation can look many different in many different contexts, I'm sure. And so understanding what that looks like from the beginning, it's like, you can't win the game if you don't know how to what the objective is, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And I mean, I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago and um, they asked me to put a proposal together and it's like, all right, I could have just run and put a proposal together. Right. But I said, well, I'd love to do that. I really appreciate that opportunity. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Of course. So there it goes again, just (laughs) asking for permission, (laughs) just highlighting that. Asking for permission, right? And it was, you know, I asked questions around, you know, what her timing looked like. What, was she the sole decision maker? Who else would be involved in the decision? Did she have a budget? If she, and she didn't have a budget, who, what's the process for establishing a budget and getting budget approved? Da, 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 da. And it was like, all right, I could have just run off and just thrown a proposal together. And, you know, but she wasn't ready. 
So instead, the conversation became, I really love being, I would love to be able to do this work with you. And I think that I could add a lot of value. And I think it would be great opportunity for both of us. But it feels to me as if there are some things that that would be advantageous for you to get checked off the list before I go run and do A, B, C, and D so that you know that you're in a position to move, move forward. And so what we walked away with was that she agreed to do four or five things and then she'll come back to me. I'll check in with her. And when she's got those four or five things done, then we can talk about whether or not, because she'll be in a different position. But just because somebody says, I'm, I'm ready to do something, doesn't mean actually they are. And that's part of why asking questions about process and, and escalation paths and you know signing authorities for, or spending authorities and all that kind of stuff matters because those actually help inform your position, your assumptions about your counterpart and what they can and cannot do. Yeah. I've been playing a decent amount of chess lately. And, you know, something that is, is, was a revelation for me that most people don't think about is like, you have to think about, yeah, you have to think about the pieces, but the board is the most important part. Like study the board without the pieces on it. Like you have to know what, what positions on the board are the most effective. And that's kind of like what we're talking about negotiation too. It's like, understand what the board is. You know, you have all the moving pieces, but you need to know the, the, the surface that you're playing on that dictates the rest of the game. (laughs) I love that. I just interviewed a gentleman named Bob Quinn, who's one of my childhood heroes and he's an organic farmer is the essentially the father of organic farming in Montana and wind energy and he did a bunch of things and he has a book called grain by grain and he talks about how in the agricultural industry everyone's all about the plant but it's really all about the soil yep all about the soil and so it's the same thing it's not about the chess pieces it's about the board just like in agribusiness, agriculture, it's about the soil, not just the plant. Yeah. This could be a complete tangent, but I'm just going to chase it for a second. Why was he your childhood hero? Like what did, what did that have to do with agriculture Uh, and that kind of stuff? (laughs) Well, I grew up my, the town I grew up in is a small town of about 550 people in North central Montana. And it's an agricultural community, farming and ranching. And he was really the first person in my hometown who I considered to be a real businessman. And he, um, he has his PhD from UC Davis and in bio biochemistry or bio. um, Yeah, I think biochemistry, but he, you know, he, he was the first one who I remember, and it was super controversial. Um, He's like, our farming practices are shit and we are going to destroy ourselves, our business, our communities, our planet. And we got to fucking do something about it now, though I'm, I, I guarantee he wouldn't swear. Um, <laughs> but and so he he started doing organic farming in the early 80s when it was nobody was doing organic farming. I mean, in fact, he was one of the people who sat on the U.S. Department of Agriculture's first committee to define what organic meant in the United States. So when you see that USDA, USDA organic, he's actually one of the people who decided what those what what it meant to be organic in the United States. And he's had many, many businesses. And yeah, so he's I I grew up with him and yeah, it was a real it was a real I actually got teary when he agreed to be on my show because it is just not every day you get to interview one of your childhood heroes and and he, he was, he's definitely one. 
Yeah, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing. I think it's really important. Uh, it's funny because right after this, I'm I have a, a workshop that I'm hosting, and I'm. I guess I don't know how much I want to go into it, but basically I think it's really important for us to examine our childhood heroes or like things that happened during childhood, because lots of it is really important for uncovering what your unique abilities and processes are. So that's why I asked, you know, cause obviously he had some level of influence and the impact that he was making in the world that inspired you to do stuff. So I'm glad I, I chased down that rabbit hole a little bit. <laughs> oh, I, I think that's, and I think that, you know, I think that that is a really important thing for people to understand because Understanding that gives you the ability to elevate yourself in any situation because so few people spend time. I was on one podcast and, and, you know, we were talking about kind of um, some, one of the things that makes me different from others is that I am a student of Christine McKay. I, you know, we, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, curiosity. Well, I'm super curious about myself. And I remember a number of years ago, somebody, uh, one of my bosses on a project gave me some feedback and people for some reason hate giving me feedback. They're terrified to give me feedback. I'm, I'm told I'm very intimidating. And I'm like, I'm like such a pussycat when it comes to things. It's like, I, I just <laughs> give me the feedback. And so he gave me this feedback. And by the next day I was taking action to address his feedback. And the day after he goes, my gosh, he goes like, I didn't expect you to like do anything with that right away. And I said, you know, the thing is I study myself so much. I know what works and what doesn't work and what I like and what I don't like that. I filter things so that when somebody gives me feedback, most of the time I've already made an assessment of whether that's something that I want to keep about myself or not. But if somebody gives me feedback that I haven't thought about, I will absolutely act on that very, very quickly. And, you know, so that makes you an effective, that contributes to you being an effective negotiator. And it goes back to what we talked about in terms of getting clarity. It's not just clarity on what it is that you want. It's also on clarity on who it is that you are. And when you're, when you have clarity on who it is that you are, I mean, I read this book called prisoners of geography recently by a gentleman named Tim Marshall, and it's an incredibly good book. And I, I used to say everything is negotiable, but now I say, Everything is negotiable except oceans, mountains, rivers, waterfalls, and values. And if you don't know who you are and the things that you're talking about in this workshop that you're about to do, that's about knowing who you are because those are your values. And you you have to those those are like those are really the only things that are non-negotiable. And unless you're, you know, you know, trying to get you can navigate the waters, the mountains, and everything, but your your values should be non-negotiable. They're not for sale. Yeah. I love that. Um, this, this might be a really rough transition, but one thing I wanted to make sure that I covered in, and you mentioned this in passing was the fact that price is one of the last things that you negotiate and that you, you, you know, we, we talked a lot about spending time and negotiating assumptions, but I just thought it would be really nice to highlight for people with a flashlight, you know, just kind of shed some light on this. Like what are some things that we should be looking for in a negotiation that most people aren't paying attention to? Like, do you view, like, are there certain categories of things that you find that people historically don't pay attention to them when they should be? Or how do you think about examining the things that we should be negotiating for outside of price? Yeah. So the thing, so the thing is that, I mean, everything leads to price, right? You can quantify pretty much 
everything. I mean, you can put value, an economic value on pretty much anything. So like in a lot of my, a lot for a lot of my clients, especially when they're negotiating with larger organizations, those larger organizations have very complex contracts with very complex terms and language in them. And a lot of that, and so a lot of, you know, my clients will initially just hand something off to an attorney and just say, you know, go negotiate it. But a lot of what's in like your contracts is has to do with business. It doesn't have to do with law. And your lawyer is really there to keep you out of jail and out of court, right? That's the number, those, that's the primary objective of your attorney, keep you out of jail and out of court. But the majority of your, your, of your business relationships, your negotiated relationships and contracts are business related. They drive profitability. It drives cash flow. It drives operations. It drives strategy even. And so it's really important to understand what those things are. And there are things like, you know, I've seen, I've seen companies try to dictate what hiring processes are going to be, not just for you, but every supplier and partner you work with. I've seen companies embed, you know, 500 page operations manuals in the contracts, which means that if you're not adhering to the letter of those 500 pages or however big it is, then you're out of compliance with the contract. And there's costs that goes with dealing with a lot of these things. And, you know, if you have a product, it's like, who owns returns? What happens if stuff's damaged en route? Who plays freight? Who does, you know, what's your delivery times? What's, if things get, if, if it's software and things break, what does, what does that look like? Do you get remedies? Do you not get remedies? I mean, these are, there's so many things in a negotiated relationship that drive profit. And that's the thing that I'm a huge, especially for small businesses, they tend, sometimes small businesses tend to get so focused on revenue that they forget to make a profit. And these bigger companies are, you know, they will impact your profit, not just because they want deep discounts, but they're also going to, they're also super expensive to service. And so are you prepared for them? Yeah. I, I could be getting this wrong, but Patty Lawrence, did she refer you to TFO or did you refer yeah. her to TFO? No, she, Patty, okay. Patty, okay. Patty. So, so I had Patty on the show and like, that's another thing that I wanted to make sure I brought to this M figure millennials audience is the fact that um, the first person that brought this to my attention was Jay Abraham in the, in the book, getting everything you can out of all you've got. But like so many people think that the main way to grow a business is through increasing revenue, increasing profits, but there are plenty of ways that you can grow a business that have nothing to do with, you know, more sales or marketing and that kind of stuff. And so I feel like that's, that's part of the reason why I wanted to ask this question is because in a negotiation, again, similar to most of us thinking that we need to just add more sales, there are ways that you can grow or leverage different negotiating variables if you understand how they play into the growth of a business. So would recommend for people to read, at least that's my number one resource on this topic is getting everything you can out out of all you've got long title by Jay Abraham. Uh, But just, just to see some of the other ways that you can grow a business without just adding more sales all the time. Well, I'm going to say, Brandon, one of the things that I really appreciate about you and and to the the listeners, and one of the things that I think makes you stand apart is, um, is that you are really well read and you are, you're, you're just a sponge when it comes to learning and, and it matters and, and it matters in how you build relationships. It matters in your negotiations. It matters overall in your business success, because 
being able to get inputs from lots of different sources to figure out what's going to work from for you is hugely important. And certainly from a negotiation perspective, like I mean, I'm usually in two to three negotiation classes at a time all the time. I'm constantly reading and learning and, and studying and seeing how other people teach it and talk about it and, and continuing to refine kind of my message and my approach. But I also read lots of other things. I mean, I can sit and relate history to the work that I do and, and geopolitics and, you know, nonfiction and classics. And I mean, cause I'm constantly reading cause you never know how, what, how you, make a connection between something, you never know if that is the connection that's going to resonate with somebody else. And, you know, when you're negotiating or, or podcasting or, or selling, you know, it's, it's really about that relationship and figuring out what's that story. Like the Iditarod. I mean, who the hell would have thought that I'm in standing in a car dealership in Massachusetts that I'd be talking about a Montana Iditarod winner. <laughs> I mean, who thought I'd even be talking about the Iditarod? I certainly didn't, but it did. And so having lots of knowledge from different places that you can piece together is actually really valuable. Yeah. Well, th thank you so much for the kind words. I really appreciate that. And I think that might be, you know, part of the reason why we get along so well is I, I took this note from one of the first calls we had. I don't know. I don't know if you articulated it this way or if this was my version of articulating it, but like we were talking about the concept of unique ability um, or, you know, your superpower or your, your God-given gifts, however you want to articulate it. But I wrote down your unique ability is identifying interconnectivity amongst numerous variables and connecting disparate ideas. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and so I don't know if that's the way you articulate it or if that's just the way I wrote it down. But I think that that's something that I do very, I, I do very much as well is like, I have the, the core things that I focus on, but I study so many different things and I'm just naturally curious about how it connects back to my things. Uh, and, you know, for you, it's negotiation, but it's, it's just a fun way of viewing life, at least from my perspective. <laughs> well, and I want to make sure that, you know, cause there are obviously a lot of people who are like, I ain't going to read that much. This is not who they are and what they do. But if you walk through life and you're intentional about the experiencing the things that you are in, in, in experiencing life as you are in it and you observe how you are experiencing life and, and doing that, then that's where you find the points of commonality with, with others. And that's where you find the stories because storytelling is a huge part of effective negotiation. And it's, that's not really something we've talked about, but being able to, to use a story to create common ground, using a story to make a connection that seems like out of the left field. Um, that's, that's how you bring people and ideas together. And that's, you know, that's how we, that, that's like the ultimate of humanity is, you know, our ability to tell the stories of our life. And no matter what story or what experience you have, you know, my experience, even if we experience the exact same thing at the exact same moment, my relationship with that experience is going to be different than yours. So giving each other the opportunity to share what those experiences are and what they, how they felt, what they mean to us, that becomes part of how you discover opportunities in your negotiation, whether it's with a partner or parent or, or in business. Yeah. And not to say that this is, I mean, I, 
I would, I would highly encourage anybody listening to see what you can learn from your just day-to-day environment. Like my wife will tell you, like, I'm always taking pictures of random shit. And I'm like, that was really interesting. Like, I'm going to find out a way to use that. If I saw like a billboard or something, or like, you know, just a conversations with people. Like for me, Jules calls it gold harvesting. Jules Duncan, if you listen to this, you haven't listened to episode three, listen to the episode with Jules, close, close, uh, dear friend of both Christine and, and myself. But, but I think it's so true that in, in life, if you can just learn how to learn from everything, uh, it's just something that's going to really take you so far because it's just going to give you ammo and, and view things. And I think that that's actually naturally what leads into your ability in a negotiation is like, you probably just do this naturally in your life. You're, you're analyzing stuff and seeing the weird connectedness between things, but you're actually practicing negotiating, negotiating by doing that. Is that kind of how you view it as well? Absolutely. And, you know, I will say for those of you who are not, who, who, who are struggling, you know, because this can feel a little out there, right? And sure. <laughs> a little meta actually. But so if I had to give you one thing to study that will help you connect with a huge percentage of people, especially in um, the United States and in Europe, um, but growing all over the world is study every breed of dog, get a good book that describes all the dogs on the planet, because you'll be walking down the street one day and you'll see a dog and you'll pass the owner and you'll go, that bourgeois is so beautiful. And they'll go, what? And like, you know, you, and they'll just be the, and, and guess what? Now you get to start a dialogue. Ah, it's just that you just don't get to see them very often. They're unique. They they like one person. They have these characteristics, these characteristics. And nobody loves talking. I mean, because I avoid talking about children because there's all sorts of emotion that goes with for yeah. some people who can't have them or haven't had them or whatever. But dogs... Everybody loves to talk about dogs. And even if they're cat lovers, they still tolerate those of us who talk about dogs. So study dogs. That was one of the smartest things I ever did was get a really good book on all the breeds of dogs. So that when I see a dog, I know. And my husband tries to throw me for a loop and he sent me one not long ago. And I just saw the picture. I was like, it's a giant Commodore. What are you talking about? And, you know, and it's like, and it's, but it's huge. I'm telling you, if there's only one thing, if, if you, if you said to me, Christine, I only have time for one thing. What do I learn that it, that's going to help me be a better negotiator? Study dogs because dogs will help you build relationships. That, that I'm so glad we, we talked about that. That's hilarious. Is there, is there a particular book that you would, I, I've already Amazoned it. There's a book called every dog, a book of over 450 breeds, the complete dog breed book, new edition encyclopedia of dog breeds. Is there a particular one that you've read that, that I, I don't probably... remember that I remember the cover. I don't remember, but I, now I'm going to, I'm going to go buy the 400 one because I'm sure that there weren't 400 in the ones that I, that I studied a number of years ago, but it, it just goes, it just goes so far. And, and when you see them, you will, it's every dog owner will light up. And, and, and now it's like, I'll I'll figure out the breeds. I'm like, Oh, is that, is that a Pompeon mix? Or, you know, and it's like, Oh my God, how did you know? That is so brilliant. That is so brilliant. I love that so much. I'm absolutely going to order a dog breed book because you're right. It's so, it removes so many barriers that people have. I'm sure you could probably have like some stone faced, you know, really 
pup chest pupped out kind of guy. And then you talk about his dog and he's like, Oh my God, <laughs> let's talk about yeah. my dog. <laughs> and, and they often have little ones. Like, <laughs> these big, big guys here in Los Angeles walking with these little teacup poodles and, and whatnot. And it's like, ah. and it's, it's great. There's actually an article about big, you know, big men and their, and their little dogs that they did in L- the LA times a while ago. And it was hilarious, but now I'm telling you, like, if there's only one thing that I can tell you to study to help you build relationships more effectively, it's the dogs. Okay. I'm, I'm going to take you up yeah. on that. I will purchase yeah. this immediately after this conversation. Yeah. And then, and, uh, then tell me the first time you see a dog and you tell, and you say something to the owner and ask the question, is that, by the way, is that a such and such? And they go, oh my God. And yes, they will be really happy. That's so you. funny. It reminds me growing up. And this is like, I, I feel like I'm the last, I'm, I'm the youngest of the millennials. So like, I, I feel like I'm, we're, we're us as a millennial generation are one of the last few people that are experienced this, but I used to play the CD ROM game of 101 Dalmatians. And there was like a, a game that you got to play where you would match the dog to the owner as kind of like a, a, a thing. And that just kind of reminds me of like studying dog breeds. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody listening can relate and playing a CD ROM game when you were growing up. Cause those That's were fun. Awesome. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Christina, I want to be respectful of your time. There's, there's so, so much more we could dive into. So maybe we'll have to do a, a repeat on some other stuff or, or dive into some more things. Um, but just a few last questions. I started asking this, so I don't know if I'm going to keep asking it, but be curious to just kind of ask you, you know, part of seven figure millennials is all about inspiring millennial entrepreneurs to prioritize their happiness, health, and relationships. And I think one of the most important things when it comes to designing a life that really makes you happy, it kind of goes back to our conversation is having clarity on, on what, you know, this life looks like from you. And maybe, maybe you have a seven figure business. Maybe you don't, it's not, it's not relevant at all, but like, you need to understand what that looks like. So for you, what is happiness? Oh, for me, I, uh, it's like being in nature, being with my, my daughters and my husband and, and my dog. And it's, and it's also giving back to people. I volunteer, I sit on two boards, uh, two nonprofit boards, and I have a vision for um, building schools for indigenous populations in Central America. And I just, I love to give back. And, and I love working with people early in their career and helping them figure out what it is that they want to be doing and, and how to help them get to that, those points. That's so for me, it's about, it's really about giving back and, and experiencing money is not a motivator for me at all. And so, but I, I do like things kind of simple. I yeah. like the simple, I, I met, I, I still, even if I, even though I live in downtown Los Angeles, I'm still a country girl at heart <laughs> and uh, you can take the girl out of the country, but you can't take country out of the girl. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And if you're listening and you, you know, you have a similar definition to happiness that Christine has or whatever that is, my question and challenge to you is why can't you start doing a little bit more of that today? Cause usually the, the, the stuff that brings you the most happiness does not require much of a bank account. You know, you can do, you can do the things that make you happy. Like Christine's case, she could probably walk outside and go in the woods and <laughs> be significantly happier than before she walked in. So thank you for answering that. Other question is where can people find out more about the, the stuff that you have going on? Uh, we can time this so that this is released when your podcast is for sure out. Uh, but, but so tell us about the podcast, tell us about your upcoming books that I know you have and all that other good stuff. Yes. So we'll be dropping the podcast, um, in a couple weeks. Um, it's called in the Ven zone and it is all about, and we take this conversation and we just go deep. We have 
just so many. I've got the CEO of the company who owns the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils, Scott O'Neill. I've got an Olympic, um, an Olympic athlete. I have Jillian Michaels. I, I mean, it's just this broad range of people. And we talk about all things negotiation rated from what do you do when you get overextended? Um, one of my guests, one of my favorite conversations with the millennial who owns a roofing business in Western Virginia. He he found out, woke up one morning, found out he grew too fast and was $800,000 in debt to his biggest supplier and negotiated a deal with them, then realized he couldn't pay it back the way that he thought it was and he had to renegotiate again. So Is that it's Mark, just, Mark by chance? Yes. Uh, so, so, Mark, Mark, so, so you'll listen to, so you can listen to Mark on both Christine's show and hopefully, I don't know when that'll come out, but he's, Mark is either already Mark in the past McShirley. or he will, he'll be coming in the future and he has a great story. He's a great guy. But. Yeah. Mark McShirley. Yeah. So, and, and so it's, it's really just a candid kind of what, what works, how as a small and mid-sized company, do you compete effectively and what works in negotiation and what doesn't. And we just talk about a broad brush. I also have my first book coming out soon called Why Not Ask, a conversation about getting more. Uh, it's an interview It's an interview style book. Um, we developed it as an audio book and then ha- are editing it into a book. And it should be ready, I- I'll say May at this point, but it should be out by May, April, late April, early May. And then we have programs that we're launching, Venn Masters, which is essentially Toastmasters for negotiation. So it is an experiential-based um, learning program uh, so that people can practice negotiation. We talk about some of the, you know, the some of the theory and the the tools and kind of tricks that people use. I hate using the term tricks, but we talk about some of the the things that people do, some of the behaviors that you see in negotiation, but then you get to practice and try on different things and and stuff. And so the best way to find me is you can go to our website at vennegotiation.com, which does look a little weird because there are three ends in the middle of it, but vennegotiation.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn and, or you can check us out on Instagram. Awesome. Well, I I'm so excited for your podcast to come out, and I think you know you and I, you and I have had multiple conversations about this. But I just think that something that is so impactful as learning how to negotiate more effectively, and having somebody like you that interviews people and pulls pulls out the details that a normal person wouldn't understand is something that's relevant in negotiation. So I am already a fan. It hasn't even come out yet at the time of this airing, and I'm going to be listening. I'm really excited for that. So go check out in the Ven Zone is what it's called in in any in app the that. Yeah. So if you're wherever, wherever you're listening to this app at this time, you should, you should be able to go and search in the Venn zone, check that out. And I guess in conclusion, I just want to say for, for, for you listening right now, if you're listening to my voice and this is your very first episode, I just want to say welcome. It's an honor to have you here hanging out with me and Christine today and would hope that you become a regular listener. And I bring on incredible people like Christine all the time. And as you can tell, I like to go really deep. I, I spend you know sometimes four or five hours researching people before I do these episodes so that it's not a surface level interview. And if you're somebody that is returning every single week, just want to say thank you so much for your support. You're what's make this show possible. I appreciate you. And regardless if you're new or if you're coming back, please do me a favor and 
share Christine's episode, this episode right now with a friend that you think would really like it, whether it's, you know, somebody that loves negotiation already, or like they're just a business owner, somebody that you think could really, this would make their day because I think I've had my life change when friends share a podcast with me. So if something Christine said really resonated with you and you have a friend that you think it's really important to, please just click that share button and share it with Chris, um, with uh, Christine's message with them and help us get that out with the world. So thank you so much, Christine, for coming. This has been a blast and maybe we'll have to have you come back and we can talk more. Uh, but I look forward to listening to your show and continuing the conversation. Awesome. Thank you, Brandon. You are amazing. You are doing phenomenal things. Keep it up. You are going to go a long way. I appreciate <laughs> you very much. Thank you so much. Hey, it's Brandon here again, and I have a quick favor to ask before you head off, and that is if you are listening to my voice right now and you are currently using either Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it would help me a ton if you could stop what you're doing, take five seconds to tap the number of stars that you think the show deserves. So if you're on Spotify, there's a place to add a star rating right underneath the name of the show. And if you're listening on Apple, just scroll down where you're seeing all the episodes and there's something that says tap to rate. Just tap the number of the stars that you think the show deserves. And you may not know this, but I typically spend over five hours of my own time each week just researching a guest on the show. And then there's the time that's spent recording the show, the intro, reaching out to new guests, and of course, all the editing, publishing, promoting that my amazing wife and high school sweetheart, Leah, helps me to manage. So all that to say, there's a lot that goes on just to get to the point where you listen to this episode. So if you appreciate the content and have 10, five to 10 seconds to spare, it would help a ton if you could leave a quick rating on the show. Extra credit if you choose to leave a review, but just tapping whatever stars you feel the show deserves helps a ton and it takes so little time. So whether you choose to do that or not, I so appreciate you and I'll talk with you soon.